Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Movie Dicks Podcast. I'm Gabriel Chavez. I'm Paul Schindel. Today, we are scrotinizing <laughs> oh, that's a good the uh, 2017 psychological horror film by Darren Aronofsky called Mother with an exclamation point. Don't forget that. Don't forget the exclamation point. Otherwise, you might uh, run into some problems with uh, other movies. <laughs> so if you aren't familiar with it, uh, shut it off now because this is a spoiler alert. It is a spoiler-ridden episode where we are going to tear this movie apart, make fun of it, examine the pieces and why it works, why it doesn't work. And if you like that, come along with us. I think you'll enjoy it. But if you don't like that kind of thing, leave now because you are about to enter a world of pain a world of pain donnie <laughs> uh, don't fuck strangers up the ass <laughs> if you need a refresh on this movie it is about a couple's relationship is tested when uninvited guests arrive at the remote home disrupting their tranquil existence so i think that that's an interesting synopsis i, I wouldn't exactly call it that um but until <laughs> that's we get all in- i knew about the movie when i watched it and uh, <laughs> it's not really about that for sure. No, not at all. Uh, it's a Paramount release. You wouldn't know it with the super intense film grain that's at the beginning of their brand new shimmering logo. It's produced through Darren Aronofsky's Protozoa Pictures, which, by the way, it's a sweet new logo design. He hasn't had this uh, logo design on any of his other films, and I really dug it. it. Stars the very indelible, lovable, and wonderful, that's a fuck ton of fulls there, Academy Award winner Jennifer Lawrence, and the ever so sublime and also Oscar winning Javier Bardem. Wait, Jennifer Lawrence won an Academy Award? Yeah, she won happen? for Silver Linings Playbook. Huh. 2012. She won in 2013 at the age of like 21, I think, actually. I'm doing shit with my life, man. She won. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you don't know who either one of these people are, you've really fucked up, or you're Rip Van Winkle and been asleep for 20 years. It was written and directed Wait, by. How old is that Rip Van Winkle uh, reference there, Gabe? Uh, probably about 210 years or so. <laughs> okay. It's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> it was written and directed by Darren Aronofsky and co-stars the legendary actor Ed Harris, who for some goddamn reason has not won an Oscar, and another non-Academy Award winner, Michelle Pfeiffer. The rest of the cast is populated by Donal Gleason. I actually just learned how to say his name properly. You'll know him as General Hux from the fucking Star Wars movies. Oh, <laughs> Uh, he's actually uh, Brendan Gleeson's son, hmm. but uh, both of his sons are actually in this because the brother of Donald's character is in this movie as well. That's his actual brother. Besides all that, the ever so wonderful creepy guy slash zealot is played by Stephen McCaddy, who's insanely good in A History of Violence. I don't know if you remember him from that movie where he gets oh, his yeah. job blown off. He's fucking amazing <laughs> in that movie. And Pontypool, which is a great, great, great virus movie. If you're in the mood for a virus movie with all this corona shit going, on that's the one to watch i think you and i actually saw that paul it's the one about the radio dj that's stuck in the radio booth and some weird cataclysmic Uh, things happen outside that's right yeah fucking dope in that movie yeah Uh, that's a good one and of course Kristen fucking wig is in this movie for (laughs) some goddamn reason yeah Uh, (laughs) i thought she was good but i was like wait isn't that uh bridesmaid lady Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah, it is so uh it took me out of the movie when i saw her Mm. yeah yeah, casting. I would say that I, I felt kind of blown away by the fact that she was in this movie. I didn't really know that she was in this film before I saw it. 
It's 121 minutes long and was shot on a production budget of $30 million, most of which was for the visual effects. It opened on September 15, 2017 at 2,368 theaters and grossed a rather anemic $7.5 million on its opening weekend. You know, <laughs> side, side note yeah. about that for a second. When Whenever I read like some article talking about how a movie wasn't as good as they thought it was going to open and like this movie where everybody was saying 7.5 is like the death of the movie, like Jesus Christ, man, you know, like seven and a half million dollars in three days name me one other industry that can create that amount of money in three fucking days drugs um, <laughs> i don't know why it got such a wide release though i mean it's i don't know yeah don't really make much money ever they definitely didn't learn their lesson with noah after <laughs> they gave that movie 135 million gross <laughs> like nothing that was that was strange, actually. We'll, we'll get into that later. This movie was fighting at the box office when it opened with the movie It Chapter One that was going into its second weekend. So that might have been part of the reason why it had such an anemic opening. Yeah. On top of the fact that it's Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, I think I went and saw It, and I didn't see this movie until. <laughs> see, that's oh, why. A few months ago, yeah. It had a 42-day domestic release that resulted in a $17.8 million domestic gross. Its international number saw its gross at $26 million internationally, making it a global box office take of $44 million. Fun fact, its least popular market was Paraguay, with a $3,200 opening <laughs> and a $5,700 gross. It was in one theater for one night. One day, yeah. Paraguay, yeah. <laughs> It's got a 6.6 .6 with 176,000 votes on IMDb, a 75% on Metacritic, and a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Lastly, it's rated R for strong, disturbing, violent content, some sexuality, nudity, and language. All that being said, tell me what you think, Paul. Tell me, tell me about Mother. What's your, what's your gut reaction when you saw it? Well, I thought it was going to be some domestic drama thing based on the description. And so I never, I didn't have a whole lot of interest in watching it. Uh, and you don't I, read, you don't read the reviews like I do. No, I never bothered reading the reviews. But one day I was like, you know what? It's free. I'm going to watch it. And I sat down and I don't know if I've ever, like the way it builds the anxiety throughout the movie <laughs> i don't know if i've ever felt that much anxiety and uh yeah in the end it blew me away i had nightmares about it <laughs> i mean it really affected me i i too will say that this was the first movie that i had a nightmare after watching it probably since i was 10 the previous movie that i had seen i remember very clearly the previous movie that i had seen where i had nightmares after it was george a. romero's movie day of the dead his 1985 sequel to his Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. That's the one when they're in Florida or Cuba or some tropical shithole. I can't remember where they are and they're in the underground bunker. And that movie gave me nightmares because of the scene where the guy gets ripped apart on the floor, the uh, the captain. He gets thrown down on the floor by the zombies and they start tearing him apart. And there's this unbelievable makeup effect that Tom Savini did where the zombie's hand reaches in from the bottom of the frame and grabs the guy by the top of the skull and pulls his eyelid up and it rips the eyelid off and starts skinning his head and he gets torn apart after that but that that definitely gave me nightmares and this is the first movie
movie since that horribly graphic zombie flick yeah. that gave me nightmares, which is saying something. Yeah, no, it uh, it keeps ratcheting up the intensity and the chaos that's going on screen. And I guess like in the middle of the movie, you get a little bit of respite, but then it just like all <laughs> hell breaks loose and everything is just thrown into chaos. And you're like, oh shit, that ha- oh my God. Oh, Jesus. No. <laughs> I mean, no. For me, the real moment in this movie that just utterly shocked me where it took my breath away and I like froze in the theater from fright was when the baby's neck snaps, when they take the baby downstairs and they're passing it through the crowd and then you just see its head cock back in a really unnatural way. And that fucked me up pretty good. Yeah, no, there's uh, some good imagery with that whole thing. Yeah. Passing it back mosh pit style and it's like pissing itself because it's so afraid and then you hear the snap and it all goes quiet. You're like, yeah, (laughs) they just went there, didn't they? Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, that's one of those rules that you're not supposed to break, which is don't kill the baby, (laughs) don't kill the dog. Uh, Yeah, there's some basics that you're not supposed to do in the film world, and this movie violates at least one of them. All, All of that being said, I have to get something out of the way right away, and that's that I fucking love this movie. I'm I'm gonna tear it apart because I know that it has problems, and I will gladly say all the problems that are with this movie. But I fucking love this movie, and I think it's sick and depraved and violent enough that it definitely holds a special place in my memory because of that. Yeah, yeah. I think the first half of the movie feels realistic enough that it's taking place in the real world, but then you hit the second half, and yeah, every thing just blows up in your face <laughs> and you just like hold on to your chair and you're in for a ride because that's kind of what it felt like my heart was beating after i saw it yeah yeah just uh that's a great movie a special note about this movie that i i find really interesting is that this is the first movie that clint or that darren aronofsky has not done with composer clint mansell and originally it was that clint was busy with something else and he got johan johansson the amazing icelandic composer he wrote a 90 minute score for this movie and they both agreed that the score didn't work. So they ended up going with no score and just these like slight tonal cues where it's like this ambient noise that they created and they morphed that in with the sound design in order to create like this sonic landscape. And yeah. I think it's I think it's really important to note that because I think that a lot of the damage that this movie does to your psyche is because the sound design, it just builds upon itself. And in the final 30 minutes, it's just this cacophony of horrifying noises and people yelling and zealous going nuts that it it really does it really does damage the psyche i think in a lot of ways yeah i think with scores and everything they're designed to you know kind of cue you as to what you're feeling and what you should be feeling and the fact that this doesn't have a score it makes you more anxious about what's going on because you don't even know how to react to it sometimes right watching crazy shit happen it Uh, leaves you like emotionally naked out there just yeah experiencing things these things with the characters so the first thing that i want to bring up about this movie that i know doesn't work is some of the supporting performances most notably michelle pfeiffer i hate to focus in on her (laughs) she doesn't do a great job in this movie she's very i mean i don't know how much of this was written on the page versus what darren was trying to get out of her but overall i found her to be this just like incredible incredibly annoying woman right and i think that works though (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted to hit her the whole time i'm like god 
just throw the pitch out. You know, part of that part of that for me really is the problem with this movie, though, is that I know that from a broad sense, the actual story about this that Darren Aronofsky had talked about was that this movie is based on Jennifer Lawrence's character is Mother Earth. And nobody in this movie is referred to by name. It's just she's Mother, Javier Bardem is him, and then Ed Harris is man, and woman is Michelle Pfeiffer. And then it's oldest son, youngest son, and everybody throughout, they don't have any names. Darren was very consciously trying to create this thing that is about the rape of Mother Earth. But all that being said, there's a lot of biblical subtext to this movie that I find completely fascinating. I, I was just re-watching the movie the other day and I was sitting there trying to go through this thing in like a biblical sense of everything that I could remember from the Bible having been raised Christian. So Paul, for instance, you weren't raised with any religion in your life. You were raised mostly atheistically, right? Yeah, and there's not much religion in me. I've never read the Bible either. Never had an interest in it. What are you going to do, man? Here's where I think your opinion is really interesting because for me, there's all this subtext that's just lying out there where for me, in my mind, he's making fun of religion and saying how much religion sucks in this movie and how fanatical belief structures in any way are extremely damaging for everyone involved. And I don't know if I had more of a guttural reaction to it because of that background or if your guttural reaction was just based upon the filmic nature of it and how it was built. Well, I mean, uh, he doesn't really get into the fanaticism until the second second half of the movie. Up until that point, I didn't realize that there were the biblical references until I started seeing that fanatics coming and then they had the kid, which is supposed to be Jesus, right? right. Or at least and there's then, that metaphor. And then they but, kill him and they eat him, just like the sacrament. Yeah, yeah. So they do all that stuff and I didn't pick up on that until, you know, later on in the movie, but then going back and thinking about it, I'm like, oh yeah, yep, there's Adam and Eve. <laughs> him, he's probably God, she's Mother Earth. You know, you kind of figure it out through the movie when he's trying to turn into a metaphor, I guess. But I mean, everything about the movie is her just trying to get some peace and quiet, and, <laughs> you know, get things back to an equilibrium. And everyone she talks to or interacts with just like ignores her. I think this movie for me, the way that it really builds anxiety is just that it seems like there's this endless stream of people coming into the house in the third act. And I think a lot of that has to do with if you go back to this idea of it being like an earth mother and like that this is talking about overpopulation of the planet, right? Darren Aronofsky said that he wrote this movie in five days and it's much shorter than the time that he takes to write any other movie that he's ever done in his life. And I think as much as I love this movie, you can see the seams. And I think that that's one of the problems with this movie for me is that it's while it's something that I really enjoy and it's something that I think is incredibly effective it's almost I have to show it to only specific people or recommend it to specific people that I know are going to appreciate it with the lens of Darren Aronofsky yeah it's definitely not for everyone in fact most people (laughs) his movies are always controversial in whatever fashion that's what I love about him though man no I think they should have used maybe no name actors for a lot of the roles like Kristen Wiig it's really drawn into the you know the <laughs> second half of the movie and suddenly Kristen Wiig is there playing a serious role and doing these fucked up things and right. from uh 
Saturday Night Live. She did it all right, but uh, the fact that she was in the movie took me out of the movie for a second. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the same thing. I, I didn't know that she was in it until I saw that scene. And, you know, her being a religious zealot that shoots all these people in the head and then dies in a horrible explosion <laughs> like that. Wait, is that in real life or in the movie? No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's it. That's in the movie. Oh. She's not a, she's not oh, a religious okay. zealot that shoots people in the head oh, yeah. in real life. But besides the point, she... <laughs> She's she's interesting in it. It's just it's not enough, man. It's not enough. It's not weird enough. It just still kind of leaks yeah. through that it's Kristen Wiig playing this character. I yeah. don't know, man. But at least it's her first on-screen death. No, that's true. That's true. Which you know, I mean, if you, I mean, we need more of those. <laughs> I don't know. If you hate Kristen Wiig, this would be the movie to watch to see her get blown up. Just like how when I saw House of Wax with Paris Hilton and she gets the fucking pipe through the eye, that I was sort of cheering that one. Don't uh, don't recall that movie. <laughs> I thought you watched House of Wax okay. with me. I don't know. It doesn't. <laughs> Doesn't ring a bell. Uh, I'm sure that you blocked that in your memory for a lot of good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only other movie that we saw with Paris Hilton was Repo, the genetic opera. Remember that? Uh, there's a classic right there. <laughs> I don't even know what the hell. I still don't know what to make of that movie, but uh, it's entertaining enough. So. That movie is weird yeah. as shit, man. That, that movie is so yeah. fucking weird. I had originally watched this movie knowing the very over-the-top references to the Bible, right? Like, it's very obvious that Javier Bardem is God, and it's very obvious that there's the Cain and Abel story, right, with the two brothers and Adam and yep. Adam and Eve. Even I know that <laughs> not being uh, very well-versed in any of that. Right. Yes. But there's like, there's these little moments that I didn't catch. And the more that I watch it, I catch more of the biblical references. But one of them was when Ed Harris is by himself in the house and Jennifer Lawrence wakes up in the middle of the night and she goes to check on them and she finds Ed Harris crouched over the toilet and it sounds like he's vomiting into the toilet. And the next day he wakes up and he says like, oh, I feel fantastic. I feel so much better and i thought at first this was like a biblical allegory that like he was sick and i thought oh maybe this is a guy on a pilgrimage and he came in order to visit god or whatever but if you look at that scene when he's throwing up in the toilet she looks in and there's this really quick shot where javier bardem like shoots his hand down ed harris's back because there's a cut in his back like just above his kidney and yeah the more that i think about it he's missing a he's rib missing man. a rib yeah and then, oh, his, and then his wife shows up the next day. The next day, <laughs> yeah. And she just fucks everything up for everyone. She does fuck it up for yeah, everybody. Usual. <laughs> There's another good one in there. They have the, the wake party, whatever you want to call it. And their people are, you know, sitting on the, the sink. And she's yelling yeah. at them to stop doing that every time. They finally break the sink. And the water starts coming out and the kitchen's flooding. You know what that is, right? That snow is uh, a flood, flood right, right there. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I don't know how many uh, references there are in this. I don't know. But, it's, uh, it's a lot, man. Count them it's up. a lot. But I, yeah. I was also trying to figure out throughout this movie, there's like, there's another big reference where uh, she goes in like at one point in the movie she goes in and she sees man and woman the adam and eve ed harris slash michelle pfeiffer characters having sex and she like turns away right away but then when she goes back to their room and knocks on their door michelle pfeiffer answers the door wearing her bra and her bra has like these very obvious like leaves over her breasts and it's like an overt <laughs> reference to eve, nice you know what I, mean? I didn't notice that one <laughs> i didn't notice that did you play that back in slow, slow motion, motion a couple yeah, times absolutely. that's the only way i was able to figure it out <laughs> 
You know, the uh, the Cain and Abel reference I thought was like a little too over yeah. because he comes in like full steam, you know, like he's coming into this house yeah. that he doesn't know where the fuck he is and he's just boring through it. And I get it that this is supposed to be an allegory, but if you're trying to get me to buy it in like movie aspect that maybe the biblical allegory and like the earth allegory is secondary, nobody would come into a house that they don't know in the middle of nowhere like that. Lest, you know, you shot yeah. by some hillbilly with a shotgun right and then he gets grabbed by javier bardem and slammed <laughs> into the mantelpiece on the fireplace and he gets that mark on his head right in the middle and it's the mark of cain because cain killed oh, his brother shit. and <laughs> it's not very clever man like that one yeah. that one's a little way over the top this movie if you don't know what you're getting into when you start it seems plausible and realistic in the beginning but it just keeps going farther and farther off the deep end <laughs> as it continues and you're like, all right, this, whatever this story they're telling, it's not set in the real world. I think I really like that. No, it's, it's good because I didn't know what I was getting into. Like I said, I thought it was a drama. Cause if this, you know, a domestic drama, but if this was a straightforward, like character drama, right? Like revolutionary road. But I honestly can't say that I could ever see Darren doing something like that. Like he's a strong dramatic director, but I don't think that he could direct the two hour film that has the amount of, well, he did the one with uh, Mickey Rorick. That's oh, like the wrestler, right? Down to earth, the rest. Yeah. Yeah. He, that was all like realistic, just human drama stuff with no, you know what? No weird shit going on. Like, <laughs> That probably is his only movie that's ever been like that. You know, I'll uh, I'll take it back then. I stand corrected. He has done something that is a powerful movie because The Wrestler is fucking brilliant. That's one of those movies that, uh, that's one of those movies that got robbed of its Oscar. And that really bothered me that year because that every, every award that Mickey Rourke could have won up until that point that guaranteed him the Oscar he won. (laughs) And then last minute at the Oscars. Gabe, he's, he's too ugly to get an Oscar. Let's face it. But last minute, at the Oscars they give it to Sean Penn for Milk and like he's great in Milk and I love that movie I really do but like that was Mickey Rourke's Oscar man that was his time you know but but you know then again what has Mickey Rourke done with his career after that bunch of bullshit Uh, so he's pretty old now too I mean (laughs) give him a break Gabe I'm sorry he's he checked out man he hit the top and he's like all right I'm walking out now (laughs) dropping the mic but he didn't he made like six other movies that were god damn terrible well i've never seen him so his career ended with the wrestler and i'm fine with that i don't like to go back anymore well i'm glad that you can at least view him with those rose-colored glasses because i cannot it's 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 not there for me i've seen too many movies after that that i hated like that movie that they shot in albuquerque called angel heart or not angel heart oh fuck what was the name of it shit it was a movie that he did with megan fox oh, oh man no. oh no <laughs> it was so bad i haven't heard it i haven't I haven't heard of this one. Oh man, what was the name of they, that movie? Yeah, they shot it in New Mexico. They shot it in Albuquerque, and I remember oh, they were man. working on it. And I saw it, and I was just like, "Oh God!" And like, Jesus oh, Christ, Mickey. Yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> but the way it kind of changes from the realistic story to this more abstract nightmare kind of story, there are a lot of moments that took me out. Like, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? But Overall, I'd say when you look at it as a whole, you go back and think about it. You're like, it all works in the kind of story that they're telling. So I didn't have too many great big fuck up kind of <laughs> moments in the movie. You know, one one thing other than the other than Kristen Wiig showing up. 
Uh-huh. You know, one thing that I was kind of disappointed in having rewatched the movie that I wanted him to do a little more of, there was this moment of like surrealist horror right near the beginning of the movie, actually, where the, the man and the woman had come to stay and she goes in in order to clean up their bathroom and there's like those little tissues with blood all over them and she throws them in the toilet and she flushes it. She starts washing her hands and she turns around and the toilet's overflowing and she goes over in order uh, to plunge it and as she's plung- plunging uh, it, there's that human heart that like shows up in the trap and she goes to poke it with the end of the plunger and it shoots a a bunch of blood out and it sucks back down into the toilet trap with like this uh, yeah, weak noise and <laughs> yeah there's a couple moments like that where you're like oh, maybe it's the house is supernatural or something and it's startling and it's yeah. the only scene that's like that like they they do go back with the the heart motif throughout it where she puts her hands against the wall and she views the heart and it's like dying throughout the movie until it finally stops near the end of the movie but it's like the one moment of like this weird surrealist horror that i really liked man you know i, I really really liked that yeah. scene it was a shame that he didn't go back to that i was expecting for somebody to rip it up open a wall and find some entrails or something to that effect (laughs) (laughs) well they do blow up the house yeah you know i'm sorry i'm just gonna talk about this for a second with the blowing up of the house at the end viewing it a second and a third and a fourth time that's a hollywood moment right there and it's just (laughs) (laughs) that's the only way he could sell the script to paramount (laughs) they're like uh you know you're i know that they blow up a couple people but we need like a lethal weapon moment at the end where the house blows up. Can you, can you make that happen? And yeah, he's like, all right. Yeah. We can work it out. I think that, we can I think that the more time that goes on, I, I know that it needed to work its way back toward the beginning where everything's on fire and like the rebirth happens and everything like that. But I don't know, man, you know, like, <laughs> a giant explosion. Come on. That worked for me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Give it a five out of uh, six <laughs> explosion marks for my rating system. So. All, all that being said, you know, I, I, I have a hard time uh, separating my love for this movie versus what I know doesn't work in this movie because I, I am fully that type of guy that will not admit that something's wrong simply because I love it. You know, like there's several movies that are like this for me, but it always gets the same guttural reaction out of me. I, I mentioned it at the end of the last podcast, but I remember that I went and I saw it in theaters. I was doing a movie in Buffalo and I walked out of the theater and my fucking hands were shaking. And I remember that I had to call like five or six friends and just be like, dude, you got to check this movie out. I don't know if I'm fucking high on crack or what's going on, <laughs> but like my hands cannot stop shaking. And then I had that fucking vivid nightmare that night and anything that can get that much of a guttural reaction out of me. So what did you think about the nipple? Was that over the top? Was that egregious or was that uh, all right? The nipple? What are you talking about the nipple? Yeah. When she starts getting beat oh, to death, they, like towards the end. They rip her shirt open and the nipples out. Yeah. For me, yeah. for me, by that point, I was already the first viewing of the movie that I had. I was going in with it like as they were developing that it felt a lot like this allegory toward Mary and Jesus and like all that shit. Right. And they had just taken the Christ baby away and they're beating the living fuck out of her. And all I could think of was like the story of like Mary and Mary Magdalene and that it was somehow that she was switching to the other Mary and she was a whore like Mary Magdalene. And they're beating the fuck out of her. This is something that took me out of the movie, actually, is I was thinking about like a religious attachment to this movie where where they were beating a woman that had a savior baby. And I couldn't think of it because Mary, the mother of Christ, didn't have this moment in her life. Like she's always been revered, but Mary Magdalene did because she was a 
fucking prostitute. So I, I wasn't sure what they were going for. But, you know, when I went back and I watched it a second time and I read a little bit about it, about the uh, the interview with Darren talking about that it's an allegory for Mother Earth and whatnot. I was like, oh, yeah, OK, that makes sense. It's just all these people are like beating the shit out of Mother Earth and they don't give a fuck. And I don't know at what point God actually intervened on Mother Earth's behalf. And that, as far as I know, has never happened in the history of the world because I don't believe that God exists. But... <laughs> <laughs> besides the fact that i don't think that there's like a real moment where they're like destroying the earth and like what's the phrase that they use in uh, pulp fiction divine intervention happened and god yeah. or divine intervention stopped something from happening i i can't take this movie literally obviously but i was because i'm trying to find fucking connections i don't know but i didn't i didn't view it as egregious like the nipple coming out because if they're beating the living fuck out of her and they're calling her a whore because their godlike figure is basically abandoned yeah. her in this crowd to like fend for herself. I don't know. Yeah, it, it didn't. It didn't bother me. It was just more disturbing because yeah. of it. Yeah, I guess for me that moment took me out of the movie because I thought about it in the context of Jennifer Lawrence and her iPhone being hacked <laughs> and all of that stuff. And I'm like, well, she probably would have gotten paid more for doing it before, but now that that cat's out of the bag, <laughs> it's probably not as valuable. I don't know. You had to bring that up, huh? The, uh, the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I guess I thought about it in that moment. I don't know. Yeah. I, I didn't think about that in that moment, but maybe it's because I already saw her nipple and it didn't strike me as being anything that I hadn't seen before. Well, there you go. Because if it, if it is the first movie that an actress goes nude in, like Meg Ryan in, uh, in, in The Cut, right? When Meg Ryan went nude in that movie, I remember that I went and I saw it because I'm a big fan of the director. And I remember seeing it and I was just like, this movie's fucking terrible. And then she starts getting naked like three quarters of the movie she's nude in that movie. And I was just like, God damn, man. Like, just, just put it away already at a certain point it's just that was definitely gratuitous was that movie <laughs> but meg ryan i think meg ryan really wanted to be viewed as something else and it didn't do anything for her career because the studio fucked up the release of that movie and it just became like this lambasted bullshit movie that nobody saw unless they were going to go see meg ryan's nipples so <laughs> let's move on from this topic i guess we can talk about that more but uh... <laughs> One thing that I found interesting is that the irrefutable fact of this movie is that Javier Bardem plays God. And it's it's very, right. very evident, not least of all for everything that happens in the movie. But in the credits, like everybody's name is lowercase except for his character, which is him. And like in the Bible, like the only thing that's always capitalized is him, he, God, and the Lord when they're talking about God specifically. Well, before you go on, I mean, outside of this movie, in real life, do you think he's God? Oh, Javier Bardem? Yeah, awesome. he's awesome, dude. Yeah. Look at look at No Country for Old Men and tell me that he is not God incarnate in that movie. Yeah. He is absolutely yeah, he is brilliant in that movie. And that that's that's a movie that like, God damn, that movie's perfect. Okay. At the beginning of this podcast, when we first started this, I said that no movie is perfect. No Country for Old Men, flat out perfect movie. No problems with it. I don't got any issues with that movie. It's fucking perfect. I I have an issue with that movie. It's because I'm from Albuquerque and they <laughs> say that El Paso is Albuquerque. Yeah. All right. Clearly Albuquerque. So yeah, you know, especially with that, that hotel scene where, uh, where Josh Brolin gets yep. shot. Yeah, it's a yep. real problem for sure. Because I used to eat at that Carl's Jr. It's right across the street. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the only imperfect part. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's insulting to Albuquerque number one, calling it <laughs> El Paso. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, plain fact, 
uh, I, I'm going to take a diversion here for a second, but <laughs> No Country for Old Men, I view as a perfect movie, despite that little imperfection there. But I will say that a movie that's more perfect, that I will still say is perfect, same goddamn year, man, There Will Be Blood. That's hard to argue with that. I guess, I don't know. It's too long for too me. Too long? A little too yeah, fucking it, movie uh, takes place over the course of thirty years. What do you mean too long? I know. It's just. Uh, I think that whole part where he's going out and surveying with his brother, and ultimately like leads up to him murdering his brother, <laughs> like or his fake brother, that takes too long. I got bored during that whole sequence. Hmm. Otherwise, yeah, perfect. For me, 2007, with the release of No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, that was the movie gods literally giving us two fucking gifts directly from that. Yeah. Because those movies are too fucking perfect to exist in a studio world. And they were both released by the same yeah. fucking studio in the same year. Like, it's nuts. No, that's pretty and crazy. And they were being shot at the same time in both New Mexico and in Texas. No Country for Old Men had to shut down for a few days because over the hill in Odessa, Texas, they were shooting No Country for Old Men. And it was during the scene when they light up the oil well. And so there's this huge plume of black smoke right over the hill and they had to shut down because they didn't want to edit it out with visual effects and they just had to wait for three days for paul thomas anderson in order to actually get the scene done what's cheaper shutting down a production for three days or just sieging out some smoke i don't know man you know i mean it's it's neither one of those movies are like big budget movies you know what i mean yeah. But I mean, There Will Be Blood is definitely a bigger quote unquote budget because of like the spectacle of it. No Country for Old Men is a very yeah. strict like crime film, neo-noir thing, you know, and that, that's what makes it great is it doesn't have yeah. that spectacle. If you want to really nitpick here between There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, because No Country yeah. does have some pretty amazing set pieces. Well, here's another perfect movie year is the year of Pulp Fiction and L.A. Confidential. There you go. Well, you're wrong so, there. Oh? <laughs> Oh. Pulp Fiction was 94, L.A. Confidential was 97. No, they yeah, they were. Same year, man. No. <laughs> <Look it No>. <laughs> <laughs> they were the wrong year. You're thinking about you're thinking about the year of 94 that it was Shawshank oh, Redemption. Shawshank. No. Shawshank Redemption. Son of a pulp, bitch. Or Pulp you Fiction and bitch. Forrest Gump all, right. all the same fucking yeah. year. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <sighs> I'll just go lay down in the corner. <laughs> now. But L.A. Confidential is a perfect movie, too. That's one that I would view yeah. as a perfect movie. All right. But go, going back to this, this movie, which is imperfect as shit uh there's this there's this thing that i was struggling with watching it again this week and that's like the mark on the floor right when like uh kane beats abel's head in and there's that blood on the floor and like she cleans it up but there's like that one mark in the wood that won't go away and it's still wet yeah. it's all rotting. yeah and it like throughout it like starts rotting throughout the movie yeah yeah, yeah. and it like it leaks mm-hmm. down into the light bulb and then it explodes on the light bulb in the basement and it reveals the hidden boiler room where she finds the boiler room that leads to the third act of the movie which is a fucking plant by the way like that scene is so out of place <laughs> but yeah i was wondering what was supposed to happen it's actually with that and then it just disappears right. until she finally blows up everything with it <laughs> It's 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 a problem with this movie that that scene in particular. But like the the stain only stays there until she gets pregnant, and then the stain disappears, and they replace that piece of wood. But then it reappears in the final scene when she's trying to cook for him and celebrate, and then all the viewers and the followers start showing up, and then it turns into the third act where everybody goes fucking nuts. It reappears in that scene. So like I had, I yeah. had a problem when I was watching this again that I was trying to figure out what exactly that stain was representing, right? And I was reading way into it because I've seen this movie like five times, and I was at first thinking that it was like the stain of man like quite literally right like Cain and Abel was the first murder that's spoken about in the Bible which the Bible 
if you want an entertaining read full of murder and intrigue, <laughs> yeah. God damn that that book right yeah. there. <laughs> but it's good, good murder in that book. Good mm. murder, man. I mean, they kill people in the most yeah. ingenious ways in that book, man. They they stick yeah. a prophet in a log and they light it on fire and then saw him in half when he's alive. <laughs> Has, all right, can you think of a movie where the main protagonist is more like psychologically, mentally, and physically abused than this movie? Um, mother. I mean, I, I like you see her like beaten, her child's murdered, she's like burned alive, <laughs> and he doesn't cut away. I figured he'd like cut away from her like oh, burning alive, no, but no, no, it's all graphic her just burning and her flesh is burning off i yeah yeah i mean struggling to think of anything to, to be <laughs> honest i mean there, there's only two movies that come to mind number one is that movie i brought up last week which was the horror movie from 81 called possession and then the second one i have to say is gaspar noe's irreversible monica bellucci in that movie is brutalized from start to finish there's no reprieve for that woman oh i mean it only happens in a short scene in no that movie, though. what are you talking about dude <laughs> It starts with her rape and then it continues to devolve throughout that movie about her being beaten and like her being at the hands of this fucking vicious guy that's trying to track down her boyfriend. It's it's a brutal movie, man. Throughout throughout that entire movie, she's being tortured. The only reprieve is at the end where she's sitting in the park and she tells Vincent Cassell's character that she's pregnant. That's the only reprieve and then even that in the repeat reprieve scene her saying that she's pregnant and then viewing it in the context of what you saw earlier with the horrible rape scene i guess even worse man i mean it's bad but she doesn't get burned alive <laughs> so and the dude i mean he does it on the street and not in her house either so she didn't have to deal with her like space being invaded yeah you know there there is like this whole subgenre <laughs> in this movie that i really like that i think was actually really effective with it is that the the subgenre of home invasion flick yeah and you and i have talked about this before that home invasion flicks are some of the most effective psychological thriller movies ever because for, first yeah. and foremost let's just get it right off the table with funny games yeah it's it's 1997 don't watch the 2007 remake by the same director don't bother, don't bother with that but watch his original movie from 97 called funny games if you haven't seen it yeah. but in terms of home invasion like this movie i think really gave funny games a run for its money just in terms of the amount of anxiety that it creates just from people being in the home. I mean, Funny Games is different yeah. from how fucked up it is, but this movie's pretty fucked up in its own right. And with them starting off with this like home invasion that just builds to the fact that it's like an all out war zone inside of their house. <laughs> yeah. It keeps escalating. Yeah. And you never you never know when it's going to stop. Yeah. And it goes all the fucking way <laughs> to uh, like post apocalyptic fighter bombers flying around outside yeah. doesn't that happen there's like some helicopters or something that you, are blowing things you hear up you hear know. shit outside you never you hear the military coming in and like kicking the door in, and you hear like a war happening outside yeah but okay. you never see anything outside of the windows uh, i mean that one that one guy tries to help her that gi jumps on top of her and tries to help her then he gets his jaw blown off by a shotgun <laughs> which that really bothered yeah. me when i saw that when his jaw flies off and his tongue is hanging out that really fucked me up actually watching <laughs> Shit. I mean, going going back to the stain though. What I was trying to say was that with the stain, I was trying to figure out whether the stain was like quite literally the the human stain, right? Which is the what fucking poet was talking about that? I, I can't remember what poet originally introduced that phrase, the human stain. And it's this idea 
that there's something about humanity that is fundamentally flawed and that's what makes us human and it's called the human stain right and i thought at first like that's what darren aronofsky was making a reference to is that murder and like wanting to kill your fellow man is really what defines humanity which i can't I can't disagree with him on that. You know, man, man has never been more clever than when he wants to kill another man. Like almost every single large piece of technology or huge move forward where for technology yeah. came out of a human being's need to want to murder another human being. So I can't fault it in that. But <laughs> what I was trying to say was is that I couldn't tell if it was the human stain or if it was like the stigmata, right? Because it reappears right after she gets pregnant and right before the Christ child is born. And is it like this foreshadowing thing that gets bigger and worse? I, I don't know exactly what that's supposed to represent, but it really bothers me. We should write Darren Aronofsky a letter and ask him. <laughs> I think that would be a good idea. I mean, one, one thing that I really appreciated about this movie, but it is distancing a fuck ton of people immediately, is that Throughout the movie, it makes fun of God. It shows God as being like this huge egotistical dick. He only cares about his followers and like his people that are going to worship him. There's a fine line between making fun of religion or like poking at its flaws and like outright writing it as like a complete pile of shit. Yeah. And like me personally, it only stuck out because I had that religious background. And I was like, the way that you make fun of religion effectively, in my opinion, is like Richard Dawkins, where you spend a majority amount of time arguing your thesis on why the fuck religion is a pile of shit but when you immediately just kind of make fun of it like it's cheap points it doesn't quite work because it comes off as sort of ham-fisted and maybe you're not thinking deep enough there's so much about religion that you can poke fun at and like berate that's that's a lot more dense than just going for the cheap low-hanging fruit yeah see any monty python movie <laughs> for good <laughs> highbrow ways to make fun of religion highbrow <laughs> I mean, I love Monty Python as much as the next guy, but I wouldn't call that highbrow. Life of Brian is not a highbrow movie, man. Oh, absolutely, man. It's all about making... I mean, that movie is all about fanaticism as well. And uh, so, right. yeah, think about it like that. I, I think it... It's a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's interesting that this movie uh, constantly talks about him as like a poet, right? And this is something that kind of pulled me out of the movie is that he's supposed to be this brilliant poet. He just gets her pregnant, right? And then he just like immediately starts running around with his dick out trying to find a pen and paper so he can start writing. And he sits down in the lower living room and he's like writing it out and he's just like, it was the pain of the other people the night before with their grieving at the, at the wake and everything like that combined with her being pregnant that it just got his thoughts flowing. And he just starts really going going for it and writing it all down you see that scene like presumably months later because she's much more pregnant at that point but he comes yeah. out and he's presumably but then you realize <laughs> time doesn't really work in this movie like real time right. it's one of the parts that broke that illusion for me suddenly she's pregnant and suddenly you know within a few minutes there's like hundreds of people showing up outside the door and you're like oh okay this is not realistic anymore okay <laughs> There <laughs> We're going off the hook here. This moment that really pulled me out is he's supposed to be this brilliant poet and they keep alluding through it. She turns around, she sees him at the open door and he's got the thing in his hand and he turns around and he walks up to her and she says, is that it? And he says, yeah. And he hands it to her and she sits down on the stairs and starts reading it. And then there's that like weird cutaway where it's like him and that's like the burned house and then the two hands meet and then the house starts coming back to normal. And then they cut back to her. Presumably that's what she's reading in the poem. And they cut back to her and she's crying and she looks up at him and she's like, it's perfect. 
It's so beautiful. And it takes me out because I fucking hate when a device and a script is called out as being the most beautiful thing in the world, right? Like her trying to like sell that on top of the fact that we never read the fucking thing and we have that weird cutaway of presumably what it's about. That really took me out, man. Because I'm like, come on, it, it, it can't be that goddamn good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've never read a poem like that. How could you? Where it made you cry? Yeah. <laughs> what Robert Frost doesn't do it for you? No, not really. No. That's the only poet that New England scumbags know is Robert Frost. By the way, New England scumbags. You have to enlighten <laughs> me. Are those just people from New England that he's talking about? Or yeah, yeah. Something? It's it's like it's like the salt of the earth people from New England, right? Like if you if you're in New England and you see a poem like on a fucking bench in a park, nine times out of ten, it's a fucking Robert Frost poem, and I don't know why, because Robert Frost sucks. Sorry to tell what you. What about uh, Emily Dickinson or whatever her name is? Yeah, Emily Dickinson. That, that's her name. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've I, seen those poems around. What? In park benches? No, I don't think I've ever seen a poem on a park bench, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So dumb fuck moment of the movie for me is when the zealot is anointing people and he's saying, these words are yours. And he's doing the little, you know what? Side note, there's like this little visual motif that's absolutely amazing in this movie. At the beginning of the movie, she does those two swatches on the wall right she's like mixing the paint and she does like one swatch it's like a diagonal that goes from right to the left and then the other swatch after she mixes the yellow in it goes from the left to the right and that visual motif comes back in the anointing of the zealots because he puts his hands on either side of their face and he does the same wipe across their eyebrows like that with the same fucking shape Hmm. but for me that's a dumb fuck moment when he says these words are yours and he's anointing people because it pulls me out because I'm so angry by this point for her inability to find her voice she walks out and she sees this guy doing this shit and he's obviously the fucking crazy person in the room because of the way that he's been acting throughout the movie but like she doesn't say anything to him at that point there's not that many people in the house and Javier Bardem is already upstairs it's not like he can interrupt and tell her like oh don't be mean to them she could have just said what are you doing get the fuck out of here and she doesn't say it and it bothers me so goddamn much that that for me is the dumb fuck moment of the movie where it pulls me out and I'm like just fucking say something anything (laughs) just get him out of the fucking house i don't know she's tried so many times to chase these crazy ass people out of your house that uh doesn't work for me man but she did it successfully at the wake she like after those people break the fucking sink and it starts flooding she's like get out of my house and she's screaming so she successfully chased those people off yeah but she can't seem to find her voice when there's real heavy duty shit that's happening you know what i mean yeah she lets all this go Uh. by and she lets it happen No, it is. I don't know, man. And it's the only it's the only part of the movie where it forces the third act too. Because if the zealot didn't start anointing people, it wouldn't have gotten where it needed to go. Yeah. What are you gonna do, man? I don't know. Think about rewriting it after five days. Uh, Should uh, re-edit it too. You know. make a game cut I, I hate to say that i'm already biased toward this movie in the sense that i fucking love this movie so like for me no matter how imperfect darren aronofsky makes a movie i'm still gonna enjoy something about it even noah like <laughs> let's talk about noah for a second because noah is a bad movie on all accounts yeah. <laughs> but it's beautifully put together it really is it's beautifully shot its art direction is insane the whole thing about the fallen angels like falling from heaven and they land in the rock and they're so white hot from falling and they like get covered in that molten lava and then it freezes and there are these rock monsters after that i dug that shit man you know like i thought it was great design it was great work and i like that he portrays noah as being a fucking crazy zealot I and mean, my problem with that is noah was not australian 
like Russell Crowe. <laughs> he can't. <laughs> Australia didn't even exist back then. Come on, man. I mean, bro, seriously. <laughs> but Noah, I just can't get over it, man. It's a $130 million movie where he pisses away <laughs> so many things that could have been great. And that's that for me is a black mark on his career because like just previously he had done Black Swan four years earlier. But Noah is just eh. It's it's, eh, it's it's bad. Not, yeah, it's bad. it's bad. I watched it once. I don't remember much. I remember some of the, the visuals, uh, right? Specifically with the angels like walking around and like the weird yeah deathscape yeah. or whatever. That's yeah. it. That's all I remember. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I I like at the end of that movie that he's like the earth is flooded and he's sitting on the top of the ark and he's like looking up and he's yelling out to the sky and nobody's answering him and I can't remember if it's Jennifer Connelly's character or Emma Watson's character walks up to him and like sees him doing this and it's like this weird like reversal angle where you just see this guy who looks like a raving lunatic like screaming at the sky wanting answers and it really reinforces that point that is God a delusion or is he real but the rest of the movie just fucking sucks and right after that three years later he gives us this movie and i i still don't think darren aronofsky has come back in a way that i can fully be behind him again like i like this movie i like black swan you know but like there's requiem for a dream which is an unbelievably brilliant movie yeah. Pie. Pie. Pie is a brilliant movie. Pie has the same amount of intensity, I'd say, as this movie. Mm-hmm. It just keeps getting ratcheted up throughout the whole movie. I think that if you wanted to fault Darren Aronofsky as a director on anything, it's that his movies always rely on that. I mean, the only outlier being The Fountain. I guess The Fountain. I mean, The Fountain has a lot of intensity in that third act, but it's not the same kind of intensity. Yeah. So, but all that being said, I think that if you wanted to fault him for something, it's that is that his movies are going to follow a formula and you know by the end you're gonna get this weird like third act where everything is being ratcheted up point that you can't breathe but that is a testament to his style and his directing but yeah. i'm eagerly awaiting his next movie what do you think he's gonna make like uh another biblical movie like <laughs> one about jesus or something uh, un- undoubtedly <laughs> undoubtedly he will make something that has a biblical theme but i think it's worth mentioning is that i just rewatched the fighter the other day right david o russell's movie with with marky mark and the funky bunch and christian bale it's the movie that won christian bale is Oscar and it won Melissa Leo her Oscar. But I think it's worth mentioning that Darren Aronofsky was supposed to do that movie until Mm -hmm. he dropped out in order to do Noah. And it's a fucking shame that he did. He stayed on as producer on The Fighter and I don't know, man. I think that if he went with the same kind of style that he did with The Wrestler, that like very cinema verite, like down to earth, real grungy thing that he did with The Wrestler with The Fighter, I think honestly he could have made a better movie than David O. Russell did. Not to take anything away from Christian Bale and Melissa Leo because they both deserve their Oscars, but I think it could have been a very different and more affecting movie in that way. Yeah, it's possible. But he didn't want to get typecast into making The Fighter, The Wrestler, The <laughs> right. Ten- player (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i think it's uh i think it's also interesting is that darren aronofsky for years was trying to make an x-men movie and he wanted to make this wolverine flick that it was going to be wolverine when he was in like that japan phase of his life where he was going to go to japan and learn from the samurai and there was all this like backstory about him being alive during feudal japan ages and blah 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 blah. but he didn't end up making that movie and ended up passing off the reins to james mangold and james mangold did the movie called the wolverine in 2000 13 which was fine but it's mostly forgettable darren aronofsky's got all these projects like lined up over the years that have ended up falling through for one reason or another but i would have fucking paid out of the ass to see a darren aronofsky x-men movie <laughs> X-Men. 
Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. Maybe he can uh, jump on the Marvel train and. Uh, no, man, are you one of the me? Marvel spinoff movies or something. They they would they would hire Darren Aronofsky for two weeks. <laughs> they'd fire him. There'd be no way uh, this movie funny. actually makes it all the way through into post production. No uh, way. And even if it did, they would cut the shit out of his movie so fucking badly that it would end up yeah. as like as bad as X Men Three. Or <laughs> that type of really, really bad movie in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Or, uh, or well, fuck, um, X-Men Orange is Wolverine where they show Deadpool for the first time. Yeah. And they have to like go back and remake that with Deadpool 2 where he shoots his own character because it's so fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> I kept writing as I was watching this movie again this week. One of the things that kind of pulled me out of this movie is her at the end falls down the stairs and she runs into the boiler room and she grabs the channel ox and he runs in and he's like stopping his followers from killing her. But then he's just like, no, 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 don't. And she like bashes the fucking side of the boiler and it just opens up and starts pouring oil from her hitting it with this little <laughs> wrench. And then she drops, she drops a lighter. Okay. So this goes into the science of shit. Fuel oil does not ignite with the temperature of a fucking flame from a lighter. There's some very basic science that supports this. <laughs> well, maybe they were using kerosene instead of fuel oil oh, or something like that. No, you don't, <laughs> you don't heat a house with kerosene for the boom factor. You know? well, maybe the fuel oil is an allegory to Gabe. <laughs> that, right? That's exactly it. Isn't it? <laughs> it's, not, it's not a clever allegory, though. I'll have to say that. Well, he did write it in five days, like you said, Gabe. Yeah, so, what five days is five days. It's. I mean, he should have gone for a second rewrite, I feel. For me, the lasting impression that it gave me kind of made, it, made me forgive all of the, the things that don't really make sense or don't <laughs> add up and you know by the end you realize it's more surreal than realistic and so you just have to let, yeah. let that kind of shit go yeah but you know the cinematography the pacing the editing is amazing i'll say uh, that the cinematography this is his fourth movie that he shot on 16 millimeter oh did he yeah. and it, it works for this movie because it's grimy and it's grungy and it's got like this very specific texture yeah. to it very aronofsky right there very, very natural light handheld <laughs> everything mm-hmm. yeah, he's a I mean, kind of get tired of his handheld style sometimes, <laughs> I guess. So you will always remember the bird's eye view in Requiem for a Dream where Keith David says ass to ass. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, very vivid in my mind there. Yeah. Oh, very vivid. All, all that being said, I think that Darren Aronofsky is an unusually specific director yeah. and nothing that he makes really makes money other than Black Swan. And Black Swan was this little $10 million movie that he shot in New York and it won an Oscar for Natalie Portman and it made a staggering $220 million worldwide. Yeah, But it made all this money and then they thought, oh, sure, you know, I mean, he made 22 times back the budget that we gave him. <laughs> Give him $135 million to do Noah. Yeah, and we'll throw Russell Crowe in yeah. it, and we'll yeah. throw we'll throw someone jumped off a bridge after that movie for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope that it was a studio exec from 20th Century yeah. Fox. But I think that Darren, as much as I hate to say it, even 30 million dollars might be yeah. too much. And he needs to pull it back and go back yeah. to his 10 no, million. I think he's probably more creative with less money. Gives uh, a better product and better better performances when he's uh, in the actor's face with his uh, 16 millimeter camera and just keep it cheap, man. Keep it cheap. 
don't need a huge amount of money to make a good movie let's so uh, let's 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 talk about maybe something we're going to do next week we need to move away from horror movies for a second because we've done two horror movies back to back yeah i don't want to go for low-hanging fruit here but i saw bad boys three <laughs> i'm yeah. to talk about this I would, movie with you because it's i would so do bad. that too yeah bad boys three <laughs> I mean, we had talked about at the end of the podcast last week that we were going to talk about the Twilight Samurai, but I don't think that that's a good idea because we were both talking about how much we love samurai flicks. So maybe we can pick out a bad samurai movie. The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, maybe. (laughs) Okay. I liked The Last Samurai. Well, maybe we should talk about it, but I agree. I think we should go to our roots, talk about Michael Bay next week. It's not Michael Bay, though. Aw, man. Nope, it's not Michael Bay. It's these two indie directors that they decided was going to be something interesting and (laughs) that instead. It's definitely the best one of the three, but it's still goddamn bad. Like, there's so much bad shit. It's the best one of the three. Oh, wow. All right. That's not saying much. Isn't Martin Lawrence like 60 now or something? How old is he? (laughs) I don't know. That's a good question, but I feel like him and Will Smith are just getting so old that it is bad at this point to see either one of them. Will Smith, I've seen so many bad movies with him in the last five or six years that maybe it's worth talking about Gemini Man as well, the Ang Lee film that he did with Clive Owen. Because yeah, that, that's, that's a fucking bad movie. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, it's, yeah. I think it's signaling the end of Will Smith's career. I, I'm half expecting him to go the Bruce Willis route, and I'm going to see straight the video releases with him soon. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, Netflix is the new straight to video, so I think next week let's talk about uh let's talk about Bad Boys Three. Right. So I just I want to give one quick recommendation for everybody that you and I started this podcast talking about the rise of Skywalker, and I just saw this thing today that it's an animated version of the canceled Star Wars Episode Nine movie that Colin Trevorrow had wrote. Yeah, and it's by Mister Sunday Movies on YouTube. It's this animated short where they talk about all the differences that he would have made to this movie and i challenge you to look at this poem we can do this at the beginning of an episode in order to follow up because it's only a 10 minute long video but his changes i have to say i would watch colin trevorrow's star wars flick because after seeing this like after seeing this little animated film i was like that's actually not bad and you're gonna you're gonna hate me for it because a lot of it has to do with the fact that he didn't erase everything that Ryan Johnson did. He actually kind of profited upon it. And I I like what he would have done with it. Everybody should check out the little five-minute Star Wars thing by Mr. Sunday Movies. All right. right. Let's check it out. Thank you guys for hanging out with us. We appreciate you listening. Once again, I'm Gabriel Chavez. And I'm Paul Schindel. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.